Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We are both certified arborists through the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forests, which include neighborhoods, parks, and other open spaces. We will also cover a myriad of tree topics, including the important role trees play in relationship to the climate crisis. Thank you for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence. MonheimMicrophones.com. Verdant Earth Educators provides dynamic in-person training and online learning opportunities for environmental and horticultural businesses. Owned by ISA certified arborists and former university faculty, the Verdant Earth Educator team provides consultations on tree care and recommends climate resilient opportunities for your valued green spaces. Verdant Earth Educators is all about seeding knowledge for success. Find Verdant Earth Educators at verdantearthseducators.com. This podcast is being recorded on May 12, 2023. We have two guests today. The first is Andrew Conboy, who enjoys sharing his passion for trees and their many benefits with anyone who will listen. He is an ISA certified arborist who most recently worked on the urban forestry team at the Morris Arboretum in Philadelphia. In 2020, he created Colonial Canopy Trees, a nonprofit organization that leads ecological restoration efforts in the greater Philadelphia area. In his free time, Andrew creates videos about environmental topics and shares them on social media. Through his work, he hopes to inspire people and change the way we view and value our natural lands, native plants, and wildlife. He studied environmental science at Chestnut Hill College and evolutionary biology in graduate school at Lehigh University. Our second guest is Karen Kabnick. After retiring in 2020, Karen Kabnick wanted to do everything she could to help mitigate the damages of climate change and habitat destruction. Karen met Andrew at a volunteer event and was thrilled to learn he too loved to rescue and nurture seedlings of native trees. They shared that hobby. She learned all about the countless benefits of trees and how to plant them from Andrew, friends, courses, and reading, and wanted to use her newfound knowledge to help Andrew with colonial canopy trees to restore our local canopy and reestablish wildlife habitats. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Andrew and Karen. We are delighted to have you on our podcast today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Hal and Eva. We, we appreciate it. And we're going to just have a good time and jump right into it. I wonder if you would each give us an overview on what Colonial Canopy is all about 
and how it came to be? How did you conceive it? And, and what is your mission? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll start. I first started Colonial Canopy uh, during COVID in the summer of 2020. And it kind of started as a, as a result of me just growing a lot of trees in, in little plastic pots while I was in graduate school, just as a little hobby. But eventually, I amassed a large collection and I didn't really know what to do with them. So I was, started looking for places to plant them around my community, You know, reached out, posted on Facebook, and tried to find people who were interested in planting. Around the same time, I, I started volunteering with organizations like Fairmount Park Conservancy and Philadelphia Parks and Rec. And I started learning about the importance of removing invasives, restoring your local natural spaces and ecosystems and planting natives. So I kind of wanted to bring that to my hometown in the suburbs in the Plymouth Meeting and White Marsh area. So those two things kind of came together and I decided to try to start this little group to try and improve our, our natural spaces. Okay. And then Karen, what's your take on your mission? of Colonial Canopy. Yeah, uh, I met Andrew, I guess, the next fall when he was planting one of those adorable little trees. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm so excited to see somebody planting a tree. And I had the same hobby and I had trees and I asked him if he would help me find homes for my trees. Of course, at the time I was only into Don Redwoods because I have a beautiful Don Redwood and I now know it's not native and I, whatever, I've learned a lot since then. But I started working with Andrew and learning a lot from him, and we decided to work together. And I've just had a great time learning a lot from him. He's so knowledgeable and articulate, and I just have a great time. So the, let's revisit it a little bit, because you guys have a unique thing going. How would you define your mission? What Andrew said, basically, my understanding in the beginning was it was all about planting trees and because it was called Colonial Canopy Trees, and that's how we really started. But our first events were mostly planting trees. And recently, we've evolved more into what Andrew started to talk about, um, the re invasive removals, planting smaller trees in wooded areas to try to you know repopulate native trees there. And we even find you know, little trees that are actually not eaten by deer yet, and we try to protect them. So, you know, it, it sort of evolved from that. And we actually have evolved a little bit further to have put in our first pollinator garden last weekend. So we're kind of expanding a little bit. I'm not sure where we'll go and how much time we'll spend on pollinator gardens, but that that's kind of I think it's really interesting because during 2020, that's when we started our podcast. And I think there was a lot of clarity around things at that time because everybody was so slow and not moving around yeah. that we could actually hear the universe telling us what we need to do. And I think that's really fascinating that we have come to this point where there are so many things that have come from that 2020 period. And it's enlightening for a lot of people clear across the world, including at that same time was the Miyawaki method, which started to take hold. And that's the small tree movement, the planting the small, tiny forests. And I think that all of that is kind of culminating now. We can actually see the results of that time 
And we can actually market, market on the calendar and say, hey, this is when things started to change in 2020, when we had an opportunity to really listen to the universe as we uh, were hungered down in our our isolated homes, if you will. And I want to say that, I want to say kudos to the two of you for, for doing what you're doing. And, you know, where do you see your organization going and growing in the future? Because I think that's going to be key to that 2020 uh, inspiration. Yeah, um, I think it's tough to tell. I mean, I when I started this, I didn't really envision us doing, you know, working with municipalities very often and hosting volunteer events and engaging with the community and providing education. But like Karen said, our mission has kind of evolved a little bit over time and we've done a lot more and made a larger impact than I thought we we ever could. But I don't know. We're for the future, we've thought about apply for some larger grants that would provide funding for us so we could do this full time or um, you know, trying to just increase our impact and do bigger projects and reach more people and educate. But yeah, I'm I'm not really sure where we'll go. And I'm thinking funding too. That that's I mean, we we have the same thing where we're always thinking about where to get funding from. And I'm sure that that's what your organization is looking for too. How do you get funding? And of course, you you all know that the Biden administration just said, I'm giving you $1 billion to plant trees in cities across the United States. Hey, I'm all for it. And it's long overdue as, as far as I'm concerned. And maybe that's something that could help your organization with your mission. I think what's kind of switched for us is when we became a nonprofit. And so we, we can get funds from donors and we we do get funds from donors and then they can donate tax-free. But recently uh, in 2023, we applied for three grants and we got, they're very small. So, but it, I think it gave us the confidence, if you will, to try to get a larger pot of money so that, you know, Andrew could actually possibly make a salary off of it, which is what I'm hoping. How often do you work with the respective townships that you serve? Have they embraced you and invited you to uh, town hall meetings and such? Yeah, we've we've gotten very involved with both Plymouth Township and White Marsh Township. We've worked very closely with and uh, less so with municipality of Norristown and other areas. But Karen lives in White Marsh and I'm in Plymouth, so it's good division, I guess. I I kind of focus on the Plymouth and working with the park staff there. And Karen does the same for White Marsh. And I'm on the Plymouth Environmental Advisory Board and Karen is on the White Marsh Environmental Advisory Council. So we're involved in our different municipalities. And there, over time, as we've worked with them more and more, we've kind of gained their trust and they're very happy when we organize events and help improve our parks and and things like that. They're lucky to have you. Thank you. Yeah, they really are. That's thank you. Yeah. We we also connected up with DCNR which has funding and we put in a lawn conversion project to basically put in 50 trees in a quarter of an acre, small trees, and that's another source of funding that we've introduced to White Marsh. I don't know if you've introduced it yet to Plymouth, Andrew, but we've introduced it to White Marsh and we have, uh, you know, plans to do like three different locations using that funding, which is really great. Interesting. And what 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 are these parcels of turf that you convert? 
So what we've done is kind of looked at township-owned properties. A lot of it is kind of purchased with FEMA funds because it's in a floodplain and and they're not allowed to develop it. So we had a representative from DCNR come out and kind of look at properties that Andrew and I had identified in White Marsh and invited the White Marsh folks. And they're all for getting this funding. It's almost a done deal, it feels like, because you just say you want it and they say, okay. And then the DCNR representative does most of the work. So we're not really doing that project, but we've kind of facilitated that project. It's just open spaces that the township has that could be funded. I think sometimes identifying the locations are half the battle. Once you have those locations, you know, you drive around the township and you you find this one and that one. And the next thing you know, you have a full list in your spreadsheet of where everything is. And those are things that the township certainly look for. I know I worked early on in the riparian restoration world with Cheltenham Township, and we had a lot of grant money because it, it was very, it was a very new thing. Very few people were doing it. And we identified these areas that needed to be planted up and the money came. It was just the fact that, you know, you had to have those areas, those critical areas, and especially those critical areas that flood. If you can look at those areas that flood. And you know, when you were talking about your metasequoia, even though it's not native, it's an incredibly important plant. In fact, it was discovered in fossils that it was found along riparian areas. And of course, the taxodium coming up further north, it's creeping up north. We're actually helping it to migrate. That's another plant that can not only take really dry, but it can take really wet. And sometimes these locations are really, really wet at sometimes and then really, really dry. So, you know, you have to have those species that are, you know, really tough and and resilient that can withstand those extremes. And I know um, Andrew would know from his background from Lehigh University that, you know, you're looking at things that need to be like almost 180 degrees from one another, you know, that that plant that could do the wet and the dry and, and everything else in between. And when you hone into those groups of species that can do that, it's a limited number, but it's a, it's a good number and the plants are great on it. So do you have a list of those sites on both townships that you work with? Yeah, I mean, we're all tree people here. So we're, when we're, at least when I'm driving around, I'm envisioning like where we can plant more trees and there's always space for more trees. So we have a list of, I mean, there's always more space. So it's not very difficult for us, I think, to identify places to plant. It's just getting permission and following up and through that process. But yeah, the project that Karen mentioned where we planted 50 trees and shrubs, that was at Fort Washington State Park. And one of their areas that, you know, a lot of our riparian zones were dominated by ash trees, which which have been devastated by the ash borer. And this was one of them. So like probably 60 to 70% of the trees here were ash trees. And if you go to this area of the park, it's just all stumps. There's like hundreds of stumps all around that were dead ash trees that the park had to remove um, for safety reasons. But yeah, I think trying to find these kinds of spots that need it and um, picking good water-loving and but drought-tolerant species. Um, I, I just want to emphasize that getting permission to plant at all these places has been a very big part of, of how we have gone about this. Because you have to you know, convince people, you have to convince them that this is important. And yeah. With the park that you just mentioned uh, in Fort Washington, that one also took substantial damage 
the Labor Day storm, Irma. I saw roads flooded out and streams just swollen. How did that impact plantings or how will it impact plantings moving forward? And when you are in your reforestation mode, replacing ash trees, what, what kind of things are you using there? You're absolutely right. Uh, Fort Washington State Park was kind of devastated. They had a, a pine, uh, big, huge white pines, and a lot of them kind of snapped in half. Mm. So one of our recent efforts, and we did this in part with some uh, Germantown Academy sixth graders, not some, many, just many. Um, we planted, we were starting to plant pine trees in there. That's not exactly the flood area, but it's kind of a little more upland. So I think that teaching the kids at this age that devastated forests can be replanted or even can be naturally uh, repopulated as long as we don't, we protect the uh, seedlings and remove the invasives and, you know, protect them from deer. Yeah. And one of the um, things that we did over the summer is work closely with the park staff and the friends of Fort Washington State Park. We had maybe four or five events over last summer to remove a lot of uh, oriental bittersweet and invasive vines mile a minute that were growing on the remaining living trees in that devastated pine forest area. So we were able to really cut off a lot. And you know some of these vines were really thick. We made quite a dent in that area. So we're hoping that over time, some of those trees seed in and, and naturally regenerate. But um, we've done some planting there, as Karen mentioned, to try and bring back some of those trees that were lost by that tornado because it, it took out a big chunk of the pine forest. And then upland from that a little bit, it, it took out a big chunk of mature oak forest. So just a little concerning because there's always some invasives that will that will move in after something like that happens. There's a big problem with hammer cork tree there. Yeah, that tornado was quite devastating in our area. And boy, it, it really cleaned out the tree uh, population. But it also helped, too, at the same time with all the dead ashes, kind of help them along to fall over. So working with sixth graders is quite um, a fun job. I, I worked with kindergartners all the way up through sixth grade with our community group, and I found them to be very attentive, doing things that are something that's new to them and empowering them. How, how does that make you feel? And how does that, you know, how does that work when you're working with sixth graders and making an impression on them about reforestation. How, how, how does that, how do you both feel about that? We had our recent event um, last week and there were 96th graders. <laughs> so that was a rather large population. But what I found was that there were a sub, very small subset that were super smart and interested and understood the root flare when we were planting the pine trees, wanted to keep the root flare above, uh, you know, above ground. And I find when I'm working with those that age is not to be too pedantic and not to teach them too much, but to let them ask questions and to help them get dirty and enjoy getting dirty and just kind of take it slow and let them enjoy the process and answer their questions. And so I find that working with that age group, it's it's much more important to just kind of take it slow and not teach too much and kind of let them ask questions and, and have fun with it and get excited about what they're doing. Yeah, I, I always enjoy working with groups we've worked with, the scouts, 
a couple times and young youth groups as well. And I think the most important thing is just getting them exposed to nature and ecological ideas, I guess, that there are some good plants and there's some bad plants. And just getting them immersed in nature at an early age, they're more likely to become interested in this stuff later or if they hear about it again or do a similar event down the line. I know personally, I didn't get enough exposure to nature when I was in school. You know, I didn't know anything about plants, really have an interest in plants or anything until it was until I was almost on college undergrad. So and I also think, too, and you're working with with students that you won't know how many people you've affected with your work until maybe down the road, maybe 10 years from now where, oh, you know, I worked with Andrew Conboy and Karen Kabnick on that project in White Marsh or in Plymouth. And that was like, I got, that was the first time I got permission that I could get dirty. That's, that's real, the permission to get dirty, because I know that that was one of the things we had an issue with, you know, my sneakers will get dirty or, you know, my pants will get dirty. But once they do it, they want to do it more. And uh, I think that's great that you're doing that. It's fun. <laughs> Yeah, just to give a little background for Colonial Canopy to our listeners. So you started during the pandemic. Since that time, you've planted over 400 trees. And just in the last year, 206 trees. So mind you, all volunteers. I really like the idea that you've put together 25 events. Events That sounds exhausting. Um, and engaging over 120 community volunteers for picking up trash, pruning vines, severing vines, digging up invasives, the whole species list there. That's that's fantastic. And now you're also partnering with the, the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society and the things that they're doing for neighborhood tree planting and their tree giveaways. So, you know, I am watching you guys. We're talking on the screen and I'm thinking, man, this is this is a blueprint for other communities right? You know, it's not a lot of staff at this point, but at the same time, it, and maybe I'll miss the mark here, but it seems like this is something that can be replicated, you know, in urban and suburban communities. is just not a lot of infrastructure. You Sure, you'd like to get more funding, but at the same time, look at all the good work that's going on. Thank you. Uh, Karen, you mentioned the enthusiasm of working with youth, the sixth graders, but you, you're also a retired college professor. How did your career as an educator kind of carry over or did it not carry over? I think it did. I mean, one thing that's been a theme my whole life is I just love biology. I love basic questions of biology, whether it's at the cellular and molecular level or at the, you know, macroscopic you know, trees and insects and that level. I just love everything about it. So my enthusiasm has just carried through my whole career. I think it is a little different. I think it's helped me a lot, but more specifically in my smaller upper level college courses where it was less teaching and lecturing and more interactive and drawing out and asking questions and asking students to think and just kind of slowing down with the information that I was trying to get across to them. And I think that really has, you know, helped me in working with younger people, just the concepts of slow down, ask questions, just get them interested and excited and motivated as opposed to pouring stuff down their throats which sometimes you have to do at the college level. But I think in this context, working with kids, it's more about 
you know, as I was saying earlier, getting them excited about it, getting them interested, getting them wanting to know more about what, what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yeah. With your respective townships, jumping around here a little bit, have you been able to use LIDAR or, you know, other technologies to kind of map the spaces that need to be protected? And I might as well ask, do you feel like your communities are experiencing unreasonable pressure from development or are you built out at this point? Yeah, I think both Plymouth and White Marsh are close to being built out, but there are certainly still things that still places that could be protected or prevented from being developed. But that's one thing that I know the Plymouth Environmental Board is exploring the option of creating an open space fund that would be able to purchase these little parcels of land that would be good to prevent development on. Yeah, what about, what? I mean, White Marshes? We have an open space fund, and I think it's been amazing to grab plots of land and say no development. And I think the biggest issue is convincing people. When I go to Shade Tree Commission meetings, there's a lot of waivers still being given out and nothing is given in return. Um, So one of the big issues is, in, in my mind, for the Shade Tree Commission is, or for the zoning board, is to make sure they get something when they give a waiver for not planting a tree because you're cutting, you have to cut down, but you can't plant or whatever the situation is getting some at least fee and loo money to plant nearby. But I think that, I think that's still very much a work in progress. And I don't think my community, White Marsh is, is there yet. I think that that's a model throughout all the townships in the, the, four counties surrounding, uh, maybe with the exception of Chester County, who is much more uh, protective of their open space, even though they have more open space, they're that much more protected. And I, I think that the townships need to be wiser. It should be a monetary gain so that that money can be put back into the system for trees elsewhere if they can't put it on that property or if that property, and I know in several townships right now, and they're still trying to build in riparian areas, which is ridiculous because we have downstream flooding. Don't you think of your downstream neighbors? That's critical. And why we've had so much flooding in Philadelphia during Irma that became so devastating to the uh, Schuylkill Expressway and, and 676, where it was totally uh, underwater. We need to continue thinking about that. So I think that what you're doing is very commendable and necessary and should be part of the infrastructure and the the philosophy of all townships in the region. Because if you don't have a philosophy for how you're protecting not only your own property, but what's going downstream, you're just not good neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that speaks to what's going on in my neighborhood. There's a golf course. I think golf courses are really a big problem. I mean, I'm not saying anything about golf. That's fine. But golf courses in a floodplain aren't optimal. And that's what I have right near me. Well, and that's where they're cutting down a lot of trees because they don't want to have the hazards. Exactly. Uh, they don't want the hazards, but they and they cut the trees down and then the golf course floods. And I've seen that many times in all the golf courses that I've lived around. And it's just one one big issue or it's on a steep slope and then you want to not plant anything and mow right up to the stream bank, which is another problem. You know, nitrification, dumping all that grass clippings into the waterways and I see it all the time and it's very unnerving. Um, 
So not only are you helping the townships get conscious of their their areas, but also conscious about where to plant in riparian areas. And tell us more about the tree planting itself. You're you're gathering these seedlings. Do you have a place on or in the townships where you can actually house these trees? Where are you housing them? You know, who's helping you? Yeah, so we we uh, certainly grow a lot of the trees that we plant ourselves, and we each have our own uh, backyard nursery that we've learned kind of by trial and error how to grow trees in pots. And so I think I have like 120 or so trees right now in a little fenced-in area at my backyard, and it's. It's a good amount of work to pot them up once they outgrow their smaller containers and watering them and keep making sure that everyone is cared for. But we also, we purchase a lot of our trees mainly from Hassan at uh, Tree Authority. We love his trees and we've really had no issues with his trees. They always seem to do well. So a lot of the funding that gets donated to us, we use to buy higher quality trees from usually Hassan and he has as you know, anywhere from five gallon to 25 gallon trees. And like I said, we've had a lot of success with those. I also know that the smaller the tree, the better results. You know, if you can plant thousands of small trees, you're much further ahead than solitary large trees. So you're trying to strike a balance between the two. I would imagine depending on where you're planting, but if you're planting in riparian areas, I would imagine you want to plant lots of small trees so that they can all kind of grow together and create a forest like setting like in in the Miyawaki method. What you said is exactly right. We we tend to plant the bigger trees, certainly the the bare root tree tender trees we plant in parks and in municipal settings and the smaller trees that we you know, have in our backyards are right for, you know, foresting and reforesting. And they don't require as much water, we think. So we don't have to worry as much about keeping them watered. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, we, we usually grow them for a year or two at most. So they're maybe, they're just little whips pretty much. Sometimes they get, you know, a good size. But once we get them in the ground, we never... We never root prune them or anything like that. They've grown in pots their whole life. So once we get those roots splayed out and planted, they really establish quicker. And we, we've found that they do much better even without supplemental irrigation from us. We don't have to worry about plant watering them once we... Is that a thing? Oh, interesting. You, is that true? I mean, that's what we've experienced, but is that a... Well, that's, that's true. Usually after the first year for young little sprouts, even with when they were talking about the Milwaukee method, they were saying that after a year or so, you really don't have to do much watering after that, unless you have a major drought. So the other thing you might want to try besides pots is uh, the gravel method. And you could try your new, your little babies in gravel or in a coarser mix that's kind of spread across an area where you don't have to rely on pots and transplanting. Just after a year's time, they get pulled up bare-rooted and put into their permanent home. That way you don't have to worry about the soil and the pots and everything else. You're just bundling and and you dip them into a hydrogel before you take them and put them into the plastic bags before you take them to the, the riparian areas that you're planting up. So you don't need to worry about nutrients then or do you have to supplement the gravel? No, the gravel gravel method is pretty amazing. In the short amount of time that they're there, they will find what they need to find and they create these really vast 
connective root systems. And when you go to pull them out, they'll probably be bigger than what you would have in a container because Mm. they have kind of forged themselves in in those areas. And so when you do the transplanting into the pits that you dig to put them into, they do really well because they already have these really rich, large Mm. root systems. Cool. Yeah, it makes me think of, uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, you know, Join the National Arbor Day Foundation and we'll send you, how, how many? Five, five, five free trees, trees yeah. or 25? Got 10. Yeah, because, uh, you know, you'd be on someone's property and they'd point to a red bud and say, oh, we got this, you know, 17 years ago when we joined the National Arbor Day. I remember thinking, oh, wow. I mean, this is me before I got enlightened where I was thinking, these small little things, you know, so insubstantial. You know, give me a 250-pound bare root, uh, bald and burlap tree. That's the way a tree should be planted. But it's just, for me, uh, just this whole paradigm shift, especially seeing citizens and volunteers coming together to do things like that. And, you know, along with getting the trees out and planted, when you're describing your own backyard nurseries, and, you know, even I've been talking a lot about tiny forests in Milwaukee and you know, this trend that we just love watching it build with its momentum. And, you know, it's an invitation in my mind for other homeowners or business owners to say, you know, let's turn over this unused parcel for a a mini nursery. Uh, The gravel method would be saving several steps. There's no doubt about it. I don't think you'd be buying topsoil, right, Eva? No topsoil involved? Not in the in the gravel method, no. But you know, it's yeah. interesting. I was talking with one group that it would be really cool in the city of Philadelphia for kids that needed, they need to make some money. And because they're in lower income, you know, if you have a little spot in the community where you can grow trees, when the children are have their little seedlings that they're ready to go, they could actually sell them and make money for themselves and for their family, utilizing what I would call a tiny nursery project to go along with the tiny forest project so that the children could raise money, feel like they're helping their families in in a very small way, but, but also educating themselves about how plants grow and how they can be utilized within the community. And again, keeping them small and transplanting them small would actually help them because it's sized in proportion to their bodies, you know, <laughs> that, you know, that growth spurt that they have, that's what, you know, you're hoping that that tree will have after you plant it rather than before, you know, before you plant it and then have to transplant it. I love that idea. <laughs> that's a great Andrew and I talked a couple days ago, um, yeah. you know, and most of our interviews at some point in the discussion, it's going to pop up, you know, native versus newly introduced. And we touched on Metasequoia, Dawn Redwood earlier in the show. And I'm thinking, okay, there you go. Free pass. But let's let's unpack that a little bit. It makes perfect sense to me that you'd be using natives for your ecological restoration work, right? By the way, are you able to use willow? Is that available? Do you have any sources for that? Yeah, we actually, um, we've planted some of the smaller shrubby willows that grow like right in the stream bank. We've used them for stream bank restoration and that kind of stuff. But we also recently got an order from... Uh, Go Native Tree Farm in Lancaster. And, and from there, we were able to purchase maybe four or five 
black willows. So we were planting them around stream banks in our area. And the goal is, I mean, with willows, especially, you can just take a cutting and stick it in the mud at the right time of the year. And so we're hoping to do that as these trees grow, because I'm sure you're familiar with the the Talamy conversation. Willows are really, really good for Lepidoptera too. And I don't think you know, they're planted enough. I think you're right about that. And we had a lot of old black willows along our uh, stream banks in Cheltenham, and we would take cuttings from them. They were also used to make fascines, which are the long logs that would be hooked into the stream banks. And wherever they got hooked in, when they were green, they rooted into the stream bank. And you had this whole log of new trees growing, which really did the trick when you're when you're trying to get things, especially in areas where the stream is really scoured underneath the, the edge of the stream bank. And that really makes a huge difference. And you're right, Andrew, that black willow is not as easily accessible, even though it's easy to grow. I think it's because most people think it's a short-lived tree, but even if it falls over, it's going to root. That's what's so good about it. So willows should always be considered when you're planting our native discolor, our native nigra, those are really important, salac. So the easier things grow and people see the results very quickly, that's another thing. When they see willow and the results really quickly, they're all of a sudden, whoa, wow, I can't believe we planted that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's more of that instant gratification that people love with, you know, a big two-inch caliper bald and burlap tree. They get a big tree right away. But I think watching it grow is much more satisfying. Well, and we would even find that elementary school students would come back and, you know, come back to their school after they graduated and look at their trees that they planted because they planted them. And that's that kind of ownership feeling. You know, I planted it and, you know, it should stay here for the rest of my life, no? So now, how do you encourage growers or nursery people to grow what you need? How do you encourage them to grow what you need? Yeah, we haven't really done any um, like reaching out to nurseries and encouraging. We What we really liked about this place that we ordered from in Lancaster, the Go Native Tree Farm, is that they had such a wide variety of native woody plants. They're trying to grow every woody plant that's native to the eastern U.S. So they had all the hickories. They had lots of interesting oaks um, that are hard to find in the nursery. So that's what attracted us to to them. And we, we were able to buy shagbark, mockernut, and bitternut hickory. Bitternut, especially for our riparian zones, that I think they're tremendous trees and the deer seem to kind of leave them alone for the most. Yeah. So they patented a new pot system for hickories that really long, thin tubes that are like three or four feet deep. And then there's like a little hickory sprout like coming out of the top. But when you take them out, the taproot goes all the way down. So they grow them in those things and they seem to do uh, okay. Have, have you ever used a planting bar? Have you ever seen the planting bar? These are new contraptions that are being made for those particular tubes where there's like two, like a T that sticks out where you put your foot in the ground and it makes a hole about two inches wide because the bar is about that wide. And then you pry it back and forth and you drop your plug into that pried hole. And then you take that bar and push it back. And all of a sudden, I mean, you can plant thousands of trees in, in a short time. But you have to make sure that your soil is is good, that you can get that planting bar down into it, especially after 
a moist rain or a little bit of flooding always helps to get that in there. Um, yeah. Let me ask a question that a sixth grader might ask. People always say, oh, the taproot, the taproot. So if, if it's a three-year-old mockernut hickory with a decent root system, but still has that taproot, you know, people would always say, oh, if you cut the taproot, the tree will die. Is that true? Or where's the truth with all this discussion? That's a good question. I'm not really sure of the answer. Uh, Go Native Tree Farm has a, a nice little essay they wrote about it on their website. Because sometimes uh, hickories are, are offered as bare root trees, but, but you need to cut the taproot off in order to do that. Oh. And we found that it doesn't they don't grow as well. The the transplant rate is much lower, um, and it you know I've I've talked to a number of nursery growers, and they say it's it's like really hard or nearly impossible to grow hickories mm-hmm. to a normal size, like a one or two inch caliber. So you really, I guess, have to plant them when they're when they're young and barely a foot tall. And it's like it's like a polonia who has a taproot. You can't cut its root and expect it to grow. It's easier to do it by seed. Interesting thing that what I've been discovering is that anything that has a really long top root is a tree that is going down and bringing up water to the surface, or it's bringing nutrients up to the surface for those plants that may be around it so that all of them can use those nutrients through the mycorrhizal association. And that whole idea of foraging for food through that taproot is a concept that I understand because I've looked at roots and laid them all side by side and take a look at them. Why does one have a fibrous root? Why does one have a taproot? And it's because it has a different function in the landscape rather than being a fibrous root that's going to hold back soil or stream bank like a black willow would because I've done stream um, reviews to see what's growing along the stream bank for the township. And what we would come across is this really thick mat of root with the black willow, really, really thick, like two, three feet thick. And then other plants that you can't even see their root systems, but you could see that there's things washing and scouring away from them, usually hickories, and their roots are down. So they're so far down that they they can't fall over, but they're, they're actually pulling up the nutrients. And so I, I think that when, once you study something like that, those are the trees that should go in very, very small. And once you do that, then you're also establishing a different connectivity for the grouping of trees that are in that new forested area that you're creating. So you think those roots, the taproot performs that essential function in the earliest years of the tree's life, right? It is like the central conduit for water and nutrients versus what we're used to seeing more often, which is fibrous root systems at the surface. Because they can grow in drier soils. So if you think of them growing in drier soils, like oh, we have a lot of hick- hickory around where I live. And and sometimes the ground is really dry, but other times there's vernal pools in the area. So they have that ability. But those different types of root systems are doing different functions. So that's what, so if every plant had the same type of root system, we wouldn't have the ecology that we have. You have to have all of these different spaces for these roots to survive together. And that's why even the mycorrhizae are so important because they're also connecting all those, that tap root with the fibrous roots with maybe a fibrous and tap 
like structure or more horizontal root structure like you'd find in a red maple, which is very horizontal. I mean, you yeah. they go for a long period of time. Or beaches, same thing. American beach has a very, very wide root system so that it could actually push its babies up off the root system because that's how it primarily likes to asexually propagate itself. So it's just a lot of visuals that you have to think about. Yeah. Would that, what you're just describing, Eva, would that uh, sort of speak to the idea that the diversity of different species in a different location really benefits all of the trees? That's right. And then you read Suzanne Smard's book, The Finding the Mother Tree, that interconnectivity between the spruces that they want to grow for cutting and the birches that they were, you know, clear cutting everything and just trying to put the spruces in the spruces weren't growing. Well, they realized that the birches were feeding the spruces and the spruces were feeding the birches and that was back and forth uh, mutualism. And that mutualism is something we find in our own communities as humans. You know, some of us are stronger at something else than another and we share those resources and, and plants do the same thing. And we have to think about that when we're planting. And, and I'm sure Andrew and Karen, when you're growing your seedlings, you have a multitude of different types of seedlings that you're growing so that it really makes a difference when you plant them out in your, um, in your riparian areas. Come back five years from where your plantings are and you know people are going to be aghast at what's, what amazing things are growing there because you thought of that ahead of time. Yeah, we're we're trying to going back to Hal's question about natives. We really try to focus on on natives, and we plant almost exclusively natives. Occasionally, we'll plant a fruit tree, apple trees at a park, or the occasional dawn redwood or something like that. But nothing ever invasive. But the reason why we focus on natives primarily is because the biodiversity crisis. You know, planting a native tree, planting a tree in general is good. It's going to combat the climate crisis. But when you plant a native tree, it tackles a whole different set of problems in addition to the climate issues and carbon sequestration. You're helping to improve an ecosystem's function, which also in itself helps store more carbon. Now, are you, when you're thinking about this, are you also thinking about that assisted migration of a native tree that's coming from the south, a little bit further south than us, that in a hundred years, those plants are going to be okay here? Because, you know, in my lifetime, I've seen the hemlock retreat, the uh, cedars, some of the cedars retreat, the spruces retreating, especially spruces, and I think, oh boy, I hope somebody's thinking about that. But I, I would imagine you're already thinking about it because of your background. Yeah, we, we've planted a lot of, a good amount of bald cypresses, which, you know, are moving north. And even like when you look at the sugar maple, like our native genotype of the sugar maple is is retreating north. It's not doing as well. If you go through chestnut, you'll see the old big sugar maples are all in decline. But there are subspecies and depending on which botanists you talk to, different genotypes of southern sugar maples that you know have southern genetics and are more tolerant of heat and drought. So we're planting cultivars like Green Mountain and what's the other one we planted recently? Legacy, something legacy. Sugar keg or something like that. So there are... Oh, powder keg, powder keg. Powder keg, yeah. You know, something like that we're planting. But yeah, I, I think that's that's pretty much all we've planted from down south. And do you plant shrubs too, like um, like Aeschylus parviflora, the bottle brush buckeye, which was a southern species, but being brought north, which does really great in, in riparian areas. I mean, it's it's like a it's like a gold standard, really. And it doesn't seem to be affected by deer. No, it's not. 
It is yeah. not affected by deer because ho- most chestnuts, uh, horse chestnuts are all poisonous, mm. even for people. But they have their purpose because they really are great for butterflies and insects. Yeah, we've planted a couple um, bottle brush buckeyes and button bush, which is also a lot of a lot of the stuff we plant have you know range most of the eastern U.S. and further south than us. So I think you know most of what we plant will do just fine in a warming climate up here. That's fantastic. What would Doug tell me say about Dawn Redwood as a pollinator? Does it, anybody, any bugs or butterflies interested in uh, Dawn Redwood? I wrote to him and asked him exactly that question. Oh my goodness. Really? <laughs> he never answered me. Uh-huh. Well, you know, you have to realize that not all plants are supposed to be for insects. Hmm. Some plants are for just what we were talking about, holding back stream banks. Their function is underground. It's not above ground. And it's not with association with an insect. And that's classic for some plants. You won't see you won't see insects around them. Like tulip, the tulip tree is not one. You see it okay when it flowers, it's flowering right now, but that's not one that but it is it's very important for the structure of the soil in a woodland to help everything else grow underneath it, you know, for the shade. I think you alluded earlier to the fact that you weren't upset by planting Don Redwoods. Could I just hear? No, I'm not upset by it because I'll, I'll tell you that they are extremely good for water control. They're really thank you. Yeah, we've we've planted uh, we've planted them around a couple years ago when we were starting out, but we've gotten away from planting them a little bit. But we we I still have like ten in my nursery that I've been growing for a couple years that I I don't know what to do with. But last fall we. We're restoring this riparian zone in Plymouth Township, and we planted maybe four bald cypresses, and we threw in a dawn redwood in the grove there. And we were thinking of doing a dawn redwood bald cypress grove and have it maybe down the line be some kind of cool educational thing. Like, But yeah, they grow so fast. And if you go to the Arboretum, the Morris Arboretum, those were some of the first dawn redwoods brought back once they were discovered in the 40s. So these things are like 115 feet tall right now. They're so lightweight and they I've never seen one break in a storm. I've you know, they have such good form and do such good riparian duties, I guess. Yes, well, and that's one of the things that Ed Gilman talks about. That the taxodium and the metasequoia are the two that can withstand over 170 mile an hour winds. Now, I was I was telling the story about the house that's on Meeting House and for Washington Avenue. The house has metasequoias around it. Do you know that everything around it was knocked down during the tornado? The house was never touched. And I swear it has to be the taxodium because they could withstand the, the high winds and the, and the contorted winds that we had. Not, not a fleck of roof was removed from that house, no damage. But everything around it, even across the street from it, the um, meeting house there, that was damaged. They lost trees. But these metasequoias stood there like not even a stick broke off of them. It was crazy. Like, how does that happen? I love to hear that. I was going to suggest maybe we need to have a process where a certain species can be nominated to become a U.S. citizen. (laughs) I think our immigration. I think the Norway spruce was adopted by NCCNR a long time ago because it's fine, fine, fine owl habitat. And uh, it does really well in Western PA where they've lost a lot of... uh, uh, ashes and things like that. So it, it, it has it has its 
calling card, I would imagine. Yeah. And Andrew, I think you're really right about if you mix the two, metasequoia and taxodium together, you have like a little community and they seem to really work well together. Yeah. Yeah. I just love the appearance of a grove. I'm, I think that's my favorite spot at the Morris Arboretum, just grove of 10 or 20 dawn redwoods and and they don't have, I mean, they have bald cypress in other parts of the garden, but I think it, it looks, you know, they grow quicker. They shield each other from the winds a little bit. And they're great climbing trees. But yeah, yeah. So now we have to ask you our question before we leave. And you've been such great guests. We need to find out about what your favorite tree is right now. I know because you're going to say, I can't pick a favorite tree, but what tree or group of trees do you think is really important to you? Yeah, I guess I'll go first. The favorite tree question is is something that's always changing. But my favorite tree, and it's been for maybe two years now and probably will stay for much longer, is uh, the white oak. Because I, in my opinion, nothing beats a mature, big white oak that's widespreading and just the appearance of it and the amount of insects and ecosystem function it supports. I don't think you can beat it in our area. So I love a, a big white oak. And Karen? I think mine has changed. Um, right now, I, I've been thinking about how I got interested in biology to start. And the way I got interested in biology to start was a sassafras tree because it has the three different types of leaves. And a central question of basic biology is how does, you know, how does a root cell become a root cell? And how does a, you know, a trunk cell become, how does one organ cell become a heart cell? You know, that whole idea of, of cellular differentiation and that question of those three different types of leaves started my interest in biology. I love that answer. I love True. that answer. True. Just, just an aside, there was a graduate student who did a uh, research on that and they discovered there's actually four different shapes on the tree. A left, a left thumb and a right thumb. <laughs> They counted, they counted the oh, mittens and wow. they said they're actually matching pairs of mittens on a sassafras tree. No. Somebody did it for the grad pro project. Wow. Oh, that's so and cool. I just thought that was really funny. <laughs> did they ever figure out why the three different? I guess maybe they knew that the mittens needed a mate. I have no idea. That's really cool. I never thought about the handedness. I never did too. either. Yeah. Can you imagine if you were the grad student who thought of it? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty that's pretty deep. <laughs> well, we wish you all the best with your company, your successes as you've already accomplished and continue to accomplish and the people that you're touching and the organizations that you're working with. Hal and I applaud you and I think it's fantastic. And I just there's always something good that comes from something bad and from COVID we got a lot of good stuff happening. Yeah, thank you. It's been a, a pleasure to, to talk with you guys on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. We'd love to have you back and just, uh, you know, because there's so much more to talk about and we don't have time, but uh, I would love to explore, you know, the blueprint for other communities question because, uh, you know, yeah, the Arbor Day Foundation's never going to stop mailing out those five cute little trees. And if citizens you know, knew that there's options in terms of really expanding that concept. We could move this canopy restoration 
forward a little faster. So thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Thank Take you. care, Karen and Andrew. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah. Take care. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.